Hi guys, welcome to another Train Brave podcast. I'm Rini McGregor. And I'm Chris Hendy. And today we're going to talk about something a little bit more deep, I think, <laughs> is uh, probably where we're going. We, we've given you a taster of our careers and our experience of who we are and what we do and, and why we like to help people. But I think a lot of you um, have asked questions about who we are as individuals and, and what makes us... Um, credible and knowledgeable in this specific area of eating disorders, Red S, on top of our own qualification, like do we have any experience? So I'm going to kick off and actually start by asking Chris about his experience because um, I know that uh, Polly, his wife, has had first-hand experience of Red S and obviously Chris being someone who has been the partner of that, I think there's a lot we can learn from that. Um, just want to say that, you know, this podcast is, is probably the first time we're both really opening up about something quite personal. So I hope you find it useful and, um, I'm going to kick off Chris. So talk to me a little bit about you and Polly and how you first came to know that something was wrong. Like what was your first, um, what were the first signs that you saw? Um, so yeah, we were obviously we, we moved to Australia um, mm. because we wanted to see well, wanted to do a change of lifestyle just to see what life's like on the other side of the world and what, a bit better climate. But obviously, one of the, my main reasons was to see how good Polly could be as a triathlete over there. So trained well over here, but obviously going to a better climate, she could train full time. So very quickly fell in with a professional, well, semi-professional professional team. Um, it was kind of a single swim um, kind of uh, experience for her, where she was either going to keep up and get good or she was just going to get left behind and uh, she she kept up and she she was training um full-time she went from olympic distance triathlon so for those of you who don't know it that's obviously um what the brownleys do um that's mm. that uh, 1500 meter swim the uh, 40k bike ride and 10k run that was initially what she used to do over here as soon as she got she got there her coach saw the quality of her run and and especially a half marathon distance. And he immediately told her, no, she needs to be doing 70.3, so half Ironman distance. So straight away, um, playing to her qualities, her strengths, but obviously volume does go up and the, the type of type of training does increase. And obviously when she's, she was the small fish in the group, so immediately she was obviously, her output was in, increased. And, you know, I mean, luckily, because of my back, both of our backgrounds, both, sports science sports therapy we both kind of have that degree behind us where we understand physiology a bit more than the average person and we between us we knew that we calorie expenditure and you know energy in versus energy out fueling and everything was we're aware of it but to be honest you know like you know it, it was you know we she put everything into it and she got the results very quickly she eventually got her pro license well her results went all the right way with age group wins mm. and um age group kind of uh high placings got her eventually got that pro license everything was going the right way um but you know always being aware that i was beginning to notice that she was kind of getting leaner as they were she was getting strength to weight ratio was kind of still there she was always always training right i mean we always strength and conditioning fueling we're always very aware of it however when you're when it's just the two of you mm. and a coach obviously the coach and the athletes you know we're all aware if you don't have that outside input enough then you know people aren't looking in and we, we didn't have that as, as so much but i was aware that 
I was beginning to get aware of her ha- her eating habits. Like she would go out for a four hour ride at four a.m. in the morning. You know, to get to get on, get on the road early before the cars get out, and she'd be out for four or five hours. Um, this is quite standard, by the way. It's just not unusual. I am uh, long distance triathlon behavior. This is this is you just need to get the work done to get the volume in. So she was going out for four four hour rides in the morning, coming home. I would immediately quiz her a little bit about well, what have you put in your, you know what have you put in your body over the last four or five hours, and it would be a latte, it would be a bar, it would be a protein ball, it would be something, something, but in my mind it never sat it was not, wasn't sitting right with me. But you know you're, you're learning all the time, and <clears throat> the thing is she would go and you know Polly would you know, she wouldn't mind me saying this, but you know she'll go and sleep on you know she'll go and have a sleep straight away and within. And then she'd get up and then she'd have a run session or a swim session later on in the day. And it was, you know, like you're looking at two sessions every day, six days, six and a half days a week. And that's what it takes to be an elite athlete. Mm. But you, you know, the fueling has to be on point, you know, everything has to be on point to really be successful. And and so, yeah, the warning signs were, were there from the get go in the sense that, you know, like I was asking her these questions and the answers I was getting weren't exactly making me feel confident as in like what she was replacing that energy that fuel would you say i mean obviously i work we both do but you know from a nutrition point of view i work with a lot of athletes that have red s and and i think there's a real in the general population full stop there's a real um underestimation of just how much fuel you need when you're doing yeah training like i think you know, we live in a society where we're constantly being told we need to move more and eat less. And so people who are who are moving a lot, I think, still have that voice telling them they need to eat less and they don't realize just how much fueling that they need. So we're going to we'll do another whole podcast on on red S and, yes. and the signs and the symptoms. But I suppose what I'm saying is that we know there are two types of red S. There's the involuntary red S, which is just the really not knowing, just not getting it right. And then there's the voluntary red S, which has a kind of psychological aspect where you're you're consciously making a decision to restrict and it probably starts to affect you a lot more emotionally as well. At this stage, where would you say Polly was at? Well, um, ask me that question again. So would you say at this stage, Polly was consciously restricting her intake and do you think it was starting to affect her emotionally and psychologically or do you still think this was just as simple she just didn't quite realize how much fuel she needed oh i think and i'm immediately drawn to the first mm. conscious being conscious consciously restricting because of this whole strength weight ratio you know knowing that you know it's about being maximal power on the bike being lean you know being lean is, is, is you know being efficient you know you need to be to be an endurance athlete however I do think there was a little bit of naivety to it, you know, not knowing actually I need you know, fifteen hundred, two thousand calories just to just to stand still, and mm. then to, but you know putting four or five hours of work on top of that of you know high intensity, high high volume work, you know what is that? What we we never did the numbers, you know we never mm. did the actual math of okay, well Polly needs to be consuming three thousand calories a day minimum just to be just to keep going, and yeah, I think that was probably the the biggest biggest issue we realised. Uh, it took us a while though to realize that but you know like I was 
yeah, it was an interesting one. Yeah, so I think almost a bit of both. I think it kind of it it, it merged across. Yeah. You start off with that little bit being a bit naive to it, thinking okay, you know, and then you start to make it starts to become a bit more of a conscious decision. And I think that's really important to kind of highlight is that for some people that's exactly what happens. It, it's an involuntary decision. Like you just don't quite realize how much fuel you need and the types of fueling you need. It's not always just about energy in, energy out. It's yes. about the specifics of the composition of the diet. Um, but I also think then very much when it becomes something more psychological, then it's about the personality type. Mm. It's about the experience of that individual. It's about the narrative in their mind, which then drives them to potentially become much more of a restrictive eater over exerciser. So like, would you say that's the, that's the process you saw unraveling in front of you yeah yeah i mean polly's a, you know she's, she's a driven woman like she's amazing what she does she was i mean she's a phenomenal athlete and i guess like I've, we've been together 12 years almost 13 years now and um, married five five maybe <laughs> um <laughs> and um yeah like driven like amazing everything she does but perfectionist and yeah. that's a quality i think we we know is rife within any i think you know in, in a lot of eating disorders like it's that perfectionism and there's nothing wrong with that like no there's an obsession within the sports any athlete to be the best nothing wrong with that it's just how you manage that how it's managed how you know like, are you aware of those warning signs and i i think we don't really argue about anything me and paul like mm. we're solid but my word that we got to a point where we the, the only heated conversations we had were get food down your throat like it would be the nicest possible way i would as soon as she came in from that bike ride it would be like right eggs avo toast boom get it in you i'm too tired i'll, I'll be all right i'll have something later on no now and it would literally be prep the food for her get it down her throat and then she'll pass out on the couch you know re reset i mean that's that's what it looks like you know like when you're working at those high-end levels you know you've these people you know they're working you know they're putting a lot of graph work in but sometimes you you have this excuse where you don't feel hungry mm. you know you come in and it's like i don't care yeah. i really don't care like if you want to do what you want to do you want to you want to be perform at the best consistently for the next 10 years you eat now and you can maintain that level and and, and that was probably the only thing we used to hit bash, you know, butt heads with and that was regular for a long time um and it actually if i'm honest just to kind of fast forward i don't know how many months this was probably going on for but it, it came down to the point where it was like you either do what i say like in a nice possible way and i'm not and or you stop doing triathlon mm. and it's weird to say this to all of you guys because it, i don't i'm not like a a dominant man i, I don't mean to be but sound like that but it's like when you love when you care some for someone love someone you it doesn't matter what they do i think like you don't, you don't care about their accolades and their sport all you care about is their health and when you start seeing someone who's struggling and you could see they're visibly not eating because of they think that's helping their performance no like you've got to step in and go no this is this is this is going against their health now this is con this is implicating their health so that was and polly would probably you know, she admitted a number of times now that me put my foot down is what kind of brought her back from the edge kind of thing and I think that's really, really important to highlight because the number of people that I see through clinic, um, and it can be parents, it can be partners, and they don't mean to because they want to be supportive, but actually they do the complete opposite of what you did, Chris, and they, they tend to enable. 
the behaviors to continue. And so then it becomes validated. You know, it becomes like, well, I can do this because, um, because I'm, I, I can do it because you're very determined. So you will do it but you're being enabled because no one's putting their foot down. So actually what you did is exactly kind of what I do in clinic often is when I say to somebody, you know what? Yeah, you are capable. And yeah, you probably could go out and run 20 miles and you probably could um, carry on like this for several more months, but it will come at a price that you will have to pay. And for you right now, looking at this, this situation and your clinical presentation, you are not in a position to be doing that. And I become the bad cop. Of course. But you have to be. Like, yeah. that's the position of power that we mm. talk about. Mm. It's the position of authority. If you do not take that, who is? Who is taking that, that position of authority? And, and don't get me wrong, like, it wasn't easy for me to say that. I mean, I found it easier to do to do that, to put my foot down, because I came from a place of education. I had seen, I you know, I've, I, I've had my, my degree behind me, my my experience of working with different other athletes. I had a number of my young female athletes at the time who had come up with, I had, <clears throat> we do a lot of movement screening work and we'd obviously, we look, and it's amazing how often when you start to see someone move, you start seeing these kind of red flags popping up. And mm. I had seen it with a number of my young girls at the time, my ITU athletes over there. And I was like, I'm not happy with the way they're moving. They're not moving comfortably. And lo and behold, after some blood tests, we had stress fractures. We had, I had one of my one of my girls had three, I think, in one in one season. Like it was absurd. Like, but because and what the point I'm making is that coming from that place of experience, I was able to then go look, Paul. Yeah. And she was obviously able to then, uh, uh, like, she she got it. I mean, she was an educated woman herself. And but I tell you, the other warning saying, you know, I'm just going to go. Just have a thought indecision um indecisive i love me always joke about this me and pole but she was amazing at not knowing what you know like you walk into a shop and you're going to buy something she would take ages i mean it was one of those things that we just sort of laughed about at the time but actually what's going on there in her head she was doing the math she was Mm. trying to work out what she couldn't work out what to buy what was gonna you know be about the best suited for her and sometimes she wouldn't she wouldn't get anything. And I would be like the angry husband or the angry partner, for God's sake, just pick anything for God's sake. But it's not fair. From now in reflection, I realized that actually that was another indicator of her over-processing things, talking herself out of it, talking like it was it was her, her battle going on mm. right there and there. And although we joked about it, now we look back and go, yeah, there we go. And she still has that now. Like I think we all can be, can be indecisive, but with her for, for, for sure, that was another sign that someone who's just overthinking, overthinking everything, you know, and it's, it's, it's perfectionism. You know, she wanted to make sure that everything she put in her body was spot on, but sometimes it's just get the, get that food in you. Like yeah. just, you know, get something in you. So obviously you said that you, you know, the crunch was you put the foot, you put your foot down, but, but like, what were some of the physical symptoms that Polly was going through? Like, did she open up to you about how she, how it felt for her at the time? Like what was going on for her? Hmm. Um, I mean, we're pretty open about everything. I mean, we're pretty open. Um, no, I don't, I don't think so. Like, no. I don't think there was anything. I mean, we, I mean, it was just so driven, you know, everything was, it was everything. I mean, everything, when you're that level, everything was about performance. So, you know, it should, every moment she wasn't training, she'd be on thinking about results and looking at other results. And, you know, like it's, it's just what we, what they do, but. Did she, did she lose her period? Oh, crikey. I mean, this is the other side. So this is where now in hindsight, we are, we're, we're much more aware, but Paul never had a period 
I never had a period with me. And, and okay. uh, so she's always been on the pill. She's always been on the pill. So um, <clears throat> never had a period ever, like kind of thing, you know, as an athlete. And that was kind of something we just took took as as is, um, be on the pill, you know, just never come off it, never cycle through it, you know, just always on it. And then obviously when you get to a certain level, you potentially might lose it as an athlete. Um, but yeah, no, 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 absolutely no knowledge in terms of like understanding that the, the, the implications of that. And I guess this is where the story kind of comes, sort of turns a little bit because Polly had a very good, good little short little career. You know, she raced against some of the best, best women in the world, you know, ticked a really big, you know, ticked a box in her, in her own competitive mind. And then that was it. She decided that she was done with it and she knew that she would have to commit a lot more of her life to the sport to get to the next level, to get to race potentially, possibly at a, that a grade level. And you know, like it, 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 she kind of made that decision that she wanted uh, a family um, and she started wanting a family and obviously, and then that is when, that's when this, the narrative kind of changes a lot because, okay, you stop training and you wait a month or two or however long you think might be appropriate to get a period back and obviously nothing happens and then you start to really think about it and both of us, educated minds, started to research it, okay, what do we need to do? Less exercise, eat a little bit more, but the control was still there. So, like you know, like it was, you know, you're still consciously overthinking about what foods you're putting in, um, and weight didn't really change a great deal. I don't think. I mean, Paul. I mean, I, I really want Paul to obviously share her story about this because you know, it's just as my perspective, and there's a, a lot of value in listening to what Paul has to say about this because I mean, she's done a few talks with us, and, yeah. and she did. We did a train brave. Um, presentation a couple of weeks couple of months ago didn't we yeah, in, bath, yeah. in bath and that was amazing and um but yeah i really want you guys to hear from her at some point but yeah no um yeah um we we, we waited and then we started to research went up up into the gold coast when i saw some of the um some of the leading experts up there on you know in terms of getting her on some cl- on clomid is mm-hmm. it clomid yeah, yeah. That, that, so for those of you who don't know it's uh it's a medication that they use to try and stimulate ovulation when you haven't had a period for a while, particularly if you're looking to um, start a family. Yeah. So yeah, we're very active. Okay, we're actively trying to like, okay, we, we know we want, we want we want kids. We know yeah. we want a baby. Um, something I've wanted for a decade. I mean, mm-hmm. I'm um, being a teacher and working with people. I think I've always had that. I think that's where the teaching thing came in because I just always wanted to have you know work with kids and play with you know have my own have my own kid, but. So yeah, and honestly, guys, it's been a, a, a massive journey. Like I think three, four years now, mm-hmm. it's taken us to get to a point where it took, took probably two and a half, three years to get a period back, and that in itself, moving back to back to the UK from Australia, we put it down to stress of moving. We put it into starting, you know, re- reestablishing the business over here. We put so many different labels on it to say oh this is why polly's not having a period and and actually it was still the fact that there was control there she was still controlling her food so so what do we do we took exercise out the equation i mean you're telling a professional athlete of 10 years plus to stop training yeah good luck with that but someone who is wants a baby so much she does that she just started not caring so much about what she ate and she put on a little bit of weight and she started working with you. Yeah, she did. Yeah. Conversations yeah. and just and guess what? Like, <laughs> it 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 happened. And my word, like that having that period was like played to win the lottery to start with. Mm. 
and then you want babies. So then you start, <laughs> you know, you, you start on that little journey there when you're like, okay, we're, we're having a period. And then, and then you start dreading the period coming because then you start going, look, oh, shit, that's another period. We don't want that, you know. Yeah. So like, you know, in the sense that you want that. And that day, uh, a couple of days after my birthday last year, she came down in her, in her dressing gown. And um, yeah, she just literally, she literally passed me the... Um, the stick. Yeah, <laughs> and um, yeah, no, it was amazing because she just burst into tears and and she handed me the stick and uh, yeah, she was um, game on. So that was, I mean, it was unbelievable. So it was just, uh, but yeah, four years, guys. Like, and you're talking about nights as a man being completely powerless, watching your partner struggle mentally, physically, and uh, yeah, just really really tough and you know like i tell you what like there's some great i mean she took a lot of um i know she like facebook and things i mean there's the pros and cons to social media but there was a couple of great groups she was part of and she just you know she watched from a distance and they everyone you know there's lots of people out there who are sharing the same same uh the same story you know the same same issues and it's you're not alone for sure and like not having a period is quite a it's quite a, it must it must be a very disempowering thing to have and uh yeah you're just not alone and you know it's 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 not fair to say it's hard on me because obviously but it's just it's weird as the, as the man to be completely powerless to that sort of to help you know you can only be there to support and on those nights where you're crying about you know you're crying obviously i'm, I'm in bed together kind of working out what's uh what can we do what can we change what can we manipulate what can we you know and it's when, <laughs> when you're educated when you're over over overthink it you can drive yourself crazy so um, and we know loads of people now that obviously have either walked walked the same route, same path. Some of my family, different people, and you know, and everyone's got their own story to tell in regards to this. But you, like, I, I cannot cannot say enough. Like, you know, that support around you it, it means a lot. And yeah, it's just it's uh, it's, a, it's been an amazing journey. And just so you know, guys, like the light at the end of a tunnel for us is I'm sitting here recording this podcast with with Rini. And my phone is on the other side of the room, making sure I've got loads of signal because Polly is about two weeks away from giving birth. And I'm on, I'm recording this like on the edge of my seat, waiting for that phone to ring because I've got, she, she might, you know, she could drop at any time. So like, it's, it's a weird to be recording this right now because it's like, this is the, this is the, this is the golden moment. And the next couple of weeks are obviously like, it could happen at any time, but yeah, like four years to get to this point guys. And it's, it's tough, but. I promise you that it's you're not alone when it comes to sort of stuff. And I think like it's really important. I hope that's really helped people because I think one of the things I get a lot of partners, male and female partners, calling me and saying, "What can I do? How can I support my partner? How do I get them through this?" And I think it's very hard for me to tell them what they can do because I've not been in a position where I've been someone's partner that has a problem. But I think it's really great to get your insight and actually um, it'll be great once once Polly's had the baby and things are settled, <laughs> yeah. we will get her on the show and we'll get her to talk about her experience. But um, as I said, we will be doing um, another podcast very soon about Red S specifically. In fact, you know, we encourage you to invite you to ask your questions and we'll try and answer as many questions as we can as well. Um, and we'll do something, you know, a lot more in depth about it yeah of course i mean it's 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 definitely not something you can talk about in one in, in one podcast it's it's there's multiple dimensions to it and that's why we're doing this is because 
it's, you know, it's, there's so many different avenues you come from. I mean, this is one, this is one, one scenario. There's so many different scenarios that we, we have, we've experienced with our clients yeah. and our athletes all the time. So yeah, no. And I think that's another reason why it works for us in our clinic, because, you know, Chris has hands-on experience of being with someone who has, who has got the mindset of a lot of the people we work with, mm. which makes it much easier for him to find a way in, to talk to that person, to find that way to, to connect, to, to help them to see that there is a different way and that you can still train, you can still have what you want, but you just have to learn to manage a lot of your personality traits, but also trust the process and trust the team that you put around you. So it's one of the reasons I think why we get such good outcome is because we've got people within the system who have experienced it and can can really give that support that they need. Yeah, I mean, uh, empowerment. I mean, I want you guys to understand is that when it comes to like the SNC, the strength, strength training outside of things, like it's all about giving people another another avenue mm-hmm. and you know it's and and that's what we what we look to provide and yeah i mean having having this personal insight into the mindset of it all it's 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 one one perception of it, obviously and i've and i'm continuing to do le- learning about you know but it's it's the background it's the lifestyle it's the individual it's so you it, it, it's so unique every everyone's so different has a different story to tell but you know again the, the method the, the way we go about our, our work is that we we do have this this personal experience and we kind of I, I do like to think that we have some understanding of how people behave with it yeah so. definitely guys i'm going to flip the coin now and i want to invite you to listen to Rini's story um so i've only been with Rini, I've, I've known Rini for maybe six to nine months now um and i've learned a lot about her uh, about what she does um, and again, it's come from a place where of experience. I know that much. Um, being her coach, I see qualities in her, um, and I, yeah, I'm I'm very intrigued to find out more about her. And this is kind of a, a live interview, as it were. Of, of well, I'm I'm going to find out a lot here. I know I know. But guys, I want you to be understand. This is something that really has never really spoken about like thoroughly. Um, it's been brought up a few times, but you know, it's this is very personal, um, especially coming from from herself so you guys have probably heard her speak a lot but um yeah just be just be kind and just remember she's just a she's just a a a lady who just gonna want to share her her experience with you guys all right so my lady Mm -hmm. um when did it start like how so your experience with that's let's go back so your experience with eating disorders when do you think like you you have experienced well obviously experienced it yeah so I did admit earlier this year um, on a different podcast, but I didn't go into huge details, but um, I had anorexia nervosa. Um, I was diagnosed when I was 13 years old, but I guess if I'm now that I've, where I'm, the position I'm in now, in my knowledge and my experience professionally, if I start looking back, it's, it's fairly obvious to me that I was a huge highly susceptible person to developing an eating disorder like mm. you know i've said this before in in some of my posts and some of the things i've spoken about that we're all born with a good sense of self right we're all born with um no issues but then life shapes you and your experience shape you and the way you interpret life shapes you and um my 
childhood is one that's very mixed um, and I haven't I blame no one like I want to make that very very clear like I'm a parent and we do the best we can and sometimes the best we can is maybe not not what the child needs at that time in terms of development and I guess my childhood was was very happy for the first maybe seven to eight years of my life but I I definitely struggled with a sense of self like my there was no grounding in that there was a constant comparison all the time my earliest memories is always being compared to like you know why are you not as clever as that one why are you not as slim as that that Hmm. cousin why are you not as as good as sporty as that cousin like there was a constant comparison so I guess that very early on became my narrative that I wasn't quite enough. I was always a bit of a disappointment. And I, and I honestly don't mean this negatively to my parents, just how they were. And I think it was actually their way of trying to encourage me to be more, to, to be the best I could be. But I interpreted it in the way that was, I'm a disappointment. And I guess, and this is something I've never spoken about ever. So this is, this is, this is probably the first time I'm going to ever speak about this. But I guess what... What changed everything for me significantly was, and I can't remember the exact ages, but it was around the age of maybe eight, nine, ten. Um, I suffered um, sexual abuse from people within my family circle. So not my immediate family, but people within my family circle. And I'm, And I didn't really understand what was going on. I was really young. I didn't know what it was. I know it felt uncomfortable. And I remember telling my mum about it. And she was hugely upset, as you can imagine. But again, the way in which it was dealt with was um, almost like you're a disappointment. Mm. It was a very hush-hush, you know. Got swept under the rug? Yeah. Okay. didn't happen again to be fair but I almost felt like I'd been the one in the wrong and again I'm sure that's not how it was meant to be but it's how I interpreted it so again from a very early age there was now this this narrative that I wasn't good enough there was now this narrative of shame and a real dislike for well not even dislike this disconnect with my body like I just didn't didn't connect with it at all um so like that kind of I guess in some ways like you said it got swept under the carpet and I didn't really think about it again to be honest I didn't think about it at all I'd forgotten all about it up until very recently and I'll kind of come back to that but I guess then what happens is I went to school yeah so this I'm going to jump in there I know this obviously 20 years 20 years ago yeah yeah, yeah I know <laughs> so it's only 20 years ago <clears throat> obviously your heritage your culture mm. you're, you're coming into a school I mean were there in terms of your the color of your skin, were you yes. were you singled out? Or was yeah, it, what, was hugely. That? So I was, you know, I was the different, I, I suppose. Yeah, yeah, I was the only Asian kid in both the schools I went to. First, the primary school, and then the secondary school. Until my sister came along and joined me, yeah. and so um, <laughs> and I went to private school. So my parents were very, very, you know, very kind of that traditional Indian family of you will be educated and you will do well and you will become a professional. And so we went to a private school. Um, and the first one was mixed and the second one was an all girls school. And at both schools, I was hugely bullied, um, for the color of my skin. I was singled out. I was called all sorts of names, um, everything from, you know, the usual kind of packy to, 
you're a you know chocolate bar to whatever you 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 name it and at the same time we lived in an environment so we didn't have an affluent um, upbringing my parents worked my dad worked three jobs and we had a shop mm. in order to be able to pay the fees and I got assisted places and scholarships for both schools so you're 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 obviously all, all the way along here you're you're doing well like you're, yeah. you're, you're in terms of your education and everything yeah. you're kind of ticking all those boxes yeah I'm 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 somebody that works really hard yeah. and is constantly you training the did you do much training at this time were you more just education like I was doing a lot of swimming okay so I swam a lot and I was swimming um most nights so okay. from the age of about I started swimming when I was about five and then slowly that built up and by the time I was sort of nine ten eleven I was swimming every night of the week okay. doing galas and so I was doing a lot of swimming I was always very good at sports school so I was always in netball teams hockey teams um I've always been very very sporty um spent all my spare time on roller boots okay. and doing tennis against the wall and hula hooping and on my bike you name it I was always active but where we lived we were living above a shop um in a on a council estate in um the outskirts of London and it was brutal like I remember walking you know around the like having to walk sometimes three times the the place the distance because I'd see a group of guys and I knew they would beat me up and I'd have to walk the other way and make sure that I could get home safely. I remember hiding in um, a shed until people passed because I knew I'd get beaten up. Like, it wasn't fun. Like, Again, is that, is that because, I mean, is that because of the colour yeah. of your skin? I mean, yeah. as simple as that. I mean, yeah. it's crazy, isn't it? Like, to even talk about this, like, because, you know, the world we live in now, hopefully yeah. it's not the same, but... Um, yeah, it's weird to hear I think, it firsthand again, like what it's like to. I think, grow and up this is it. I've ago. never ever spoken about racism because actually, for the last 10, 15 years, I've been very fortunate. It's not yeah. been something that's affected me. But as a kid growing up, I knew I was different. It was pointed out to me every single day. And I guess that started that narrative, yeah. you know, you're not enough. It's compounded and compounded and compounded yeah. on top you of, need, yeah. You need to do more, you need to be more. And I guess going to secondary school is where it then became highlighted. I was a teenager, your body's changing. I felt hugely uncomfortable in my body. I realize now that most of that is hormonal, but also a lot of it was how I, how I felt within myself, this not being good enough, not quite meeting the the kind of street cred should we say yeah. like I wasn't my you know my parents were very strict they didn't want me to mix with boys they didn't want me to go to parties I was brought up Sikh so I wasn't allowed to drink I wasn't smoking you know these are all things that teenagers are learning about and I was different there, yeah. yeah exactly I was different and girls are nasty at that age and I was singled out I was again called all sorts of names I was pushed around I was told I was not good enough and and I, I, I don't really know where the switch happened. Like I can't say to you that. So what was this your weight like? Sorry, I'm going to jump in here. Mm. What was your weight like? And it all these all the way through quite quite normal. Like yeah. So no one obviously sort of pulled your side when you're swimming or anything. You were kind of. No, so I was a quite a chubby child, as in a young child. I was quite um, a chubby child to the point where I was actually at one point sent to Great Ormond Street because they were a bit worried that I was quite small, um, as in short and a bit heavier than I should have been. But within, like, as soon as I got to nine, ten, actually, I just, that kind of, it was like puppy fat, yeah. as they say. It kind of fell off, and then I was swimming lots. And actually, I was just, 
I've always been quite petite, yeah, you know, yeah, always yeah. been quite small. So my weight was normal. Good. Yeah. Um, I was, when I look at photos now of me at 13, just before I suppose the eating disorder really kicked in, mm. I mean, you'd look at me and think she's tiny, you know, like I, there was nothing to lose, to be fair. Yeah, of course. I mean, you probably wouldn't have if you were training all the time. Yeah. You probably didn't have a lot to, lot no. to give, as it were. So, no, yeah. exactly. And, but I remember feeling, and I think this is really important mm. to highlight, I remember feeling fat i remember mm -hmm. feeling uncomfortable i can even feel it now like i remember i remember the day sitting on a wall like again probably hiding from someone feeling really uncomfortable in myself and going if i was thinner i don't know where that came from but if i was thinner i'd be more accepted like that was what and i think some of that had been the narrative that i'd grown up with you know like the constant comparison to my cousins and not being enough and people looking better in different clothes and people looking um you know just being happier when they were thinner like all that was thrown at me and i used all that well, i imagine 20 years ago the culture was pushing you down that way anyway yeah. it was in mag you yeah. know, i mean that exactly. was probably <clears throat> that was like almost like when it was beginning to peak almost yeah. like you know the modeling and models and yeah. everything i mean that was a in pop culture and that would have been probably it, one of its heights yeah. completely and i just and to start with it was just simply well you know what i'll just cut out all the crap yeah and so i did i just stopped eating snacks and then very, very quickly, you have to remember, I'm an obsessive personality type. I'm a perfectionist. Mm. I'm driven. Um, I do everything to my very, very best. Mm -hmm. um, soon that became, I won't eat breakfast. Then I won't eat lunch. And I was, it was really easy because my parents weren't around that much. They were both working, like I said, ridiculous jobs. Um, I didn't have huge amounts of friends at school, so nobody really noticed I was at lunch or not noticed I was at lunch. Um, yeah, it was easy. Yeah. It was easy. And and I... You just put your obsession elsewhere. You just yeah. start focusing, you know, keep yourself busy, yeah. study, training, whatever. Yeah, Exactly. Yeah. And the weight fell off really quickly. I don't remember a lot of this period of time because honestly, like... It was just, I just remember being cold. I remember being really, really cold, being really, really lonely, like really lonely and really empty. And that's all I remember. How old are you? 13. And a year passed and my mum kept taking me to the doctors because by this point my I'd only had two periods and they'd stopped. And also... What, in, in total? Yeah. So you did, yeah. yeah, okay, right. And um, and I think it was becoming more and more n noticeable that yeah, I was losing a lot of weight. And were you still swimming at this time? No. Okay, so no. they, they weren't seeing you without clothes on, as it were. No, that would have been yeah. what might have sped things up a little bit, maybe for them or yeah, exactly. And um, basically, by the time I hit, I must have been fourteen by this point. So a year had passed. And I just remember the fear had gripped me like I couldn't, uh, what I see in clinic now, mm. I remember I was there. I, I know what it feels like when you have this insane fear that eating just one more bite than you've allowed yourself is going to suddenly create this spiral and you're going to suddenly become overweight overnight. Like rationally, I know that's not yeah, a thing, course. but well, at that know. moment I was not rational. Mm -hmm. And just to give you some context, and I don't, you know, I, I had lost half my body weight by this point. Okay. I was incredibly sick. 
like incredibly sick and eventually I was um, referred to the Maudsley Hospital which is one of the most well-known psychiatric hospitals that deals with eating disorders even now um, so if you've heard of the Maudsley method that's where it comes from and I was one of the first patients they did the Maudsley method on this is how old I am as well mm. <laughs> so um, and the Morsley method is basically that you give the control over to the parents. So it's an outpatient. It's not an inpatient. It's an outpatient. Mm, okay. And you give the control to the parents. The parents have to be the ones that that make you eat. They have to be the ones that, that, that you know, change all the... Um, that they're the ones that control everything, basically. Okay. You hand over control to the parents. Were they ready? I mean, were they ready for that? No. No, and this I mean, is the thing, like my mum and dad. It's an incredible amount of responsibility <laughs> on a on a highly, I don't know, like you got to be, a lot, yeah, a lot of experience uh, needed to do that. Hundred percent, and and you got to remember. The out of it, you know, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And my parents, bless them, I love them to pieces, but they they had no clue. It's like handing over my my tra- my weight training to my my dad and my mum. Exactly. Like, it doesn't make it. They would. Yeah. Just, they, you know, they wouldn't have a clue. Yeah. They had no idea. Even if you gave them a manual. And you sat down for a day, they still wouldn't know. And no. I'm sure they didn't even do that. But they no. wouldn't have. Yeah, okay. So they had absolutely no idea. And But what happened was we'd go to the Maudsley every week. We'd sit in family therapy. They would put the fear of God in my parents that mm. your child is going to die if you don't make her eat. Mm-hmm. And that's pretty much what happened. They just put the fear of God in them. And my parents became a bit like you had to be. They had to become that that those people that were like no you can't leave the door until you've eaten this no you can't do this until you've done that okay, yeah. because th- that was the only way and they were and that was that worked i mean in terms of like it, it started you on a, a path or a yeah health? i mean i restored weight okay and within a year i was back up to the weight i had been initially which is a very normal weight for somebody my age um but psychologically, I was not no, any different. Of course not. I was, I was, I still had no idea why I'd done what I'd done. I still didn't like who I was as a person. I still struggled with my appearance. I still felt lonely. Like nothing had changed apart from the physical change. Um, mm. And, but then at the same time, also, I knew I didn't want to go back. Like that is something I would say is I knew I never ever wanted to go back to that place because it was so hideous. So you you had learned enough. Oh, um, you obviously you'd follow a regime set by your parents. Mm. It it worked. Yeah. I mean, how harsh did they have to be? Very. Okay. We had a lot of tears and tantrums. Okay. Like, a lock, lot. like lockdown, kind of like. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Great. I mean, that's unfortunately the way you know if it has yeah. to happen, it has to happen. I was happen to a doing degree, everything I that I see happen in clinic. I was hiding food. I was exercising in secret. I was, hmm. you name it, I was doing it. And they had to become very vigilant. And I was never really left on my own. It was a huge amount of pressure on my family. Huge. And I don't think they've. I don't think any of us have ever really recovered from it. To be yeah. fair. And that's not good. I mean, that, that method would not. No way would it work. No. For every family, no. no way. I mean, that's, I mean, not lucky, but it was, it's great that it, it kind of it got you to back to a restored weight. Yeah. But then again, the, the, the education wasn't really no. set. There was no real education there. It was just like, do it. And then it fell back again because I had no, I didn't know what I was doing. There's no established, no. established any sort of no. parameters. Yeah, yeah. 
So, you know, this was, I was 16 by this point. I remember doing my GCSEs and I'd dropped a stone. So I'd gone back up to where I needed to be and then I dropped a stone. And that's where I functioned for a very long time. Hmm. Like I did my GCSEs and my A-levels around that way and just functioned. I was functional anorexic is what I would call. Um, So I knew I didn't want to go any lower, but I was petrified of going higher. And I still had no idea why it was such a big deal. I had Hmm. no idea why I didn't like who I was. So now I do, but I didn't then. I had no insight and nobody was helping me I had no support at this point so the mortally got me up to my restored weight and then they discharged me mm. and that was it and there was no further help I mean you've got to remember this was a long time ago of course man you're talking 20 years I mean what yeah. what, what did we know about them I mean, nothing how much, how much was really had been established how much research been there probably not a great deal no. I, I yeah so nothing and and it was really unusual for an Asian family as well mm. like you know anorexia eating disorders has always been kind of seen as something that is a very kind of white privileged middle class type illness i'm not saying it is but that's what it was stereotyped and i wasn't any of those things so i i always have been a bit of a rebel but you know and um so so you'd restored yeah and then you said you lost so you you lost another then you got you kind of yeah dropped down dropped to a point where i was functional Hmm. And I stayed there until I went to now? uni. So this was from the age of 16 to 18. Okay. So this is when you were a woman? Be, yeah. You were becoming a woman? Yeah. Partners? No. 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 Okay. So I was massively fearful of men. Okay. Hugely fearful of men because everything that happened to me, I think also because of my, my upbringing, yeah. like men were almost the bad you don't you don't get involved it's a very very weird upbringing like it was very much you don't you're not interested in boys you're not interested in boys you're not interested in boys and suddenly you get to 21 and it's like when are you getting married like that yeah. that's kind of how my life was why aren't you married yeah yeah, yeah well, exactly um so i wasn't interested in guys at all i made it to uni yeah and suddenly got to uni and like i don't know if it was just the independence of suddenly i was on my own um but i was like I can't keep doing this to myself. This is not normal. Like I was almost exposed to normal teenage behavior constantly, 24 seven. And so I was like, something's got to change. And I remember feeling incredibly low at this point because I couldn't join in. I wasn't able to drink. I wasn't because of my upbringing. I wasn't able to really join in with the 2 a.m toasties I couldn't do anything I felt and I you know and I was also quite like I was quite shocked because you know dumped into this kind of yeah exactly yeah and life yeah and and there's a lot of bed hopping as we know at uni and it's you know recklessness yeah exactly and I I was a bit like my god is this is this real life I (laughs) I I don't really get this like this is not who I am yeah and I really struggled, again, to feel part of it. Mm-hmm. Like, I just didn't feel like I fitted in life. And I kept questioning, what, who am I? Yep. And what, what is this about? And I got very low. I'm not going to lie. I got incredibly low. And again, this is the first time admitting this. I got incredibly low. And I, I got to the point where I wanted to commit suicide. And I remember I had the pills. I was like, I can't do this. I, this, this is what my life is like. I, I don't want to don't want to live and I was I guess I was you could call it saved in that the moment I was thinking about this sounds all very dramatic but the moment I was actually thinking about taking the pills 
my door knocked and it was a friend I'd made at uni who I'd got on incredibly well with and and she was incredible for me and she came in and I was because me also always been the person that wants to help you know we know that and I was like oh, I better see what she wants because she just sort of gone really it's me so I'd opened the door and it's almost like she'd picked up on it she saw it all set up I hadn't even thought about it and she's like what the hell are you doing and I and that's when I broke down and I told her everything I'd not told her anything I'd t- tried to get on with uni I tried to get on with it all and and she was like right okay we're, we're dealing with this and she drove me to the student services at Nottingham University which is where I was at at the time and she sat with me and we got an appointment there and then and that's what probably changed everything for me because I then had three years of therapy at the uni where I started to learn more about myself, my relationships, why I needed an eating disorder, where it all come from. Um, so where your education began almost, like yeah. in terms of you've, you've done the, you've walked the walk a little bit, but then yeah. you're starting to actually understand the, yeah. the, the mindset, the psychology of it a little bit more maybe. Yeah, definitely. And I think like that was the first stepping stone. It's been a long journey, Chris, like a huge journey. And obviously... You know, I've been through all sorts of things since then. You know, I've I've got married, I've had two kids, I've got divorced. Life's not easy oh, in any form or manner. And um and I guess like people say, you know, like, do you ever recover from an eating disorder? And the answer is I feel I have recovered, as in I'm a normal weight, I have normal you know healthy body I can eat what I want to eat I don't you know I I don't think twice about if I want a dessert or a cake or a glass of wine or any of that kind of stuff but I definitely still it's because I understand now that my eating disorder the purpose of my eating disorder was a way of um coping it was my way of dealing with the abuse it was my way of dealing with not being good enough it's my way of punishing myself I punished myself for not being good enough I punished myself for the shame I felt I'm a one of the things I notice about Paul Polly you Mm. other other men and women I work with is they talk about food and then mm. I'm going to get some cake or I'm going <laughs> yeah. to have a drink yeah. or I'm going to um may put simple things on a pedestal or some in a, in a way in a way in a way um and <laughs> normal people people that haven't had a background in anything like that they just it just is yeah but then the language used and this is an insight into coaching by the way mm. working with people is language used how it's presented like how people talk display themselves it tells you they're telling you a lot without them even knowing it and you might not even be aware of it if you haven't got the experience but um i'm aware of it when people talk about certain things and where they word it as to like there's a as you say the battle's still there yeah the battle's still there in that i know that my battle is about how i perceive myself yes and when i perceive myself in a negative place so if i start to feel inadequate or if i if something stressful comes along um and I can't control it. 
I have no, don't know what the outcome is, then it's very easy for me to go back to my default mechanism, mm -hmm. which is potentially being more mindful of what I eat and, and beating myself up. And maybe I, you know, I probably train a bit harder than I should do, but I am very, very conscious and aware of my behaviors. And I do try and nip it in the bud as quickly as I can, because mm -hmm. I know it's not the solution. And I guess That's what I want to say to people is that I'm very conscious of my behaviors. I have a good awareness of when my behaviors kick into yeah. play and then I deal with it. I think, oh, isn't that what education is about though? Like you are, you're, you're, you've got an experience, you've got the education, which makes you, which has grounded you unbelievably. And yes, you know, we have rocky moments. Everyone has rocky moments. Mm. Everyone has weaknesses and like but the ability to better step back from yourself, observe yourself from the outside and go, Hey, take control or you know of course we can over you can overthink that and mm. I, i mean I, i see it all the time where people overthink things and they they might turn to their training and they might lift they might go and smash themselves in the gym or they'll go out and go go run longer and harder than they've done in months but it's everyone has their own different coping strategies and mechanisms and sometimes i don't think there's nothing wrong with that every now and again but then it's do you are you able to then step back from yourself and see that you are doing that yeah And are you aware of that? And that's where I think you need to have a, a, a strong network around you yeah. to be able to go, hey, yeah, Rini, wake up, like yeah. come back, come back, you know, come look, look, you know, or Chris, you know, whatever, whoever that is. And I think that's the that's where the the, the, the missing part for a lot of people. Yeah, agreed. And and I think that's it. Like I, you know, I'm very conscious that my I'm I. One thing I've learned this year is that you're not defined by your past so my past happened to me but it isn't me no. and I'm now very very conscious that you know what I'm a good person and I finally believe that I'm good enough it's taken me a long time to get to this mm. place but I do believe I'm good enough I know the work I do has a huge impact and I know I make a difference and I have a purpose And some of that is because of my own personal experience, because I get it and I've been there and I know how it feels when you feel so scared and so alone. But I also know you can fight it and I know you can have a good life because that's what I've created for myself. Hmm. You know, like life isn't, again, life's not linear and life's not perfect. And what I have learned is that you have to navigate life, you know, yeah. and, and, you know, I, you, you know, we're, We're coming into a new decade and the last decade has been tough. We um, talked about this yesterday, actually, how Rini in the last 10 years started one way and yeah. has finished a complete, well, started as a, as a particular type of woman yeah, with a, diff, with, with a story, a, yeah. a, a path that she was on. And then she's completely bloody changed it. Yeah. And she's completely opposite. <laughs> like, and it's one of those weird moments, I think. You had yesterday, didn't you, uh, in the gym training and you're like, huh, I'm, completely I'm a completely different woman. And it, it's amazing how you can just change. It takes time. Yeah. Decade. Yeah. But, um, yeah. But I think that's it. Like people say to me, how did you change? Like, again, somebody on Instagram said to me earlier today, I wish I was you. I wish I could be your life. And I'm like, you don't. Yeah because actually it's not been fun. But what you mean is you need to learn to choose the path you want. I have learned that I can choose the thoughts I want to believe. And I no longer believe the negative narrative. I no longer compare myself to anybody else. I just try and be the best version of myself I can be 
as often as I can be. And I have days, we both know, I have days where I am incredibly hard on myself and I beat myself up. And yeah, you say, really, come back. But it's that perfectionism. It's nothing like, there's nothing wrong with like, in the world of sport, world of training, world of professional, being a professional in any in any shape or form, like there's nothing wrong with being obsessed about a, a, a particular thing. Like if, if it's business and if it was money, you know, money we see every day. But because it's about obviously food and eating, it becomes it, it can it can have a significant, an obvious physical significant um, impact on your health. Yeah. Business and I mean, overly overly working, you don't really see the signs until you you know until, until you burn out. Yeah. So it's kind of hidden to a certain degree. But I like when it comes to your physical, like it's it's I don't know it's frowned upon, but like the the best like the best athletes and the best people in the world are obsessed. There's nothing. I don't mm. believe there's anything wrong with that because you need that to to be. Uh, at the top however you also need to have a, that network around you and that you need that balance in your life and it's who you choose to have around you those mentors around you that are going to help you on that journey and keep you balanced because you know it's, it's the lack, lack of balance at the end of the day that's going to have yeah. the impact and i think the other thing is that one of the other things that drives an eating disorder is uncertainty <laughs> like people with an eating disorder want certainty that things are going to work out and they have a huge anxiety that it's not going to work out. Like you were saying about Polly and her decide, decide making decisions. Like yeah, yeah. she wants it to be right. It has to be right because if it's not right, then something awful is going to happen. Mm. It's like this, this anxious. You know, you almost have this preempted narrative that's going to happen because you're going to get it wrong. And that's something else I've learned. And my 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 divorce and my separation from my my ex husband has helped me with this. In that, you learn from every experience. You don't there is no certainty like when I when I met my ex-husband he was the love of my life and I thought this was it and it didn't turn out that way and it was incredibly sad and it's incre you know it's been a huge loss to all of us but it is what it is but that doesn't make me a failure it doesn't make him a failure it's just what what happened in life to us and we both have to learn from that and move on and use the experience we had to hopefully have, you know, more love and 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 more fun and more adventures with somebody else. And and that's kind of what I mean is that there is no certainty at all. It's kind of an illusion that there's certainty. And I think one piece of inform one bit of nut, I guess one golden moment I want to give you is is exactly that. Is you never really know what's around the next corner. You you have no idea. But what you you do learn is how to navigate but also that you have you have the the power to choose what you want to choose to make that an easier path for you and i think that's probably a really good place to end i think so guys um i hope you've enjoyed today's podcast um give me a little bit more of an insight into my experiences obviously Rini's um Rini's experience too um yeah quite powerful stuff I've, I've learned a lot as I said I would I knew I would at the beginning um, and uh, yeah we're both we're both kind of learning all the time yeah and we just want to say sorry if you have heard a bit of noise in the background today <laughs> we are recording in a working clinic so sorry if, if that kind of interferes but hopefully you can still get a gist of, of what we've spoken about and if you have any questions for us or if there's anybody that you know that's suffering in the way that you've heard us talk about today and you need some support please, please, please get in touch. And we'll also put some details um, on the podcast notes of where to get some help. Yeah. Speak soon, guys. Thanks.